ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Today, Alexander Bard is an author, lecturer, and a religious and political activist. But back in the late 80s and 90s, he became known first for his band Barbie, and later for Army of Lovers, which was formed with La Camilla and Jean-Pierre Bardot. Their mixture of pop and camp, epitomised by the hits Obsession and Crucified, became a mainstay of the MTV playlist at that time, and they reached top 10 status in many European countries. Their success in the UK and the US was, however, limited, though Kurt Cobain praised in his journals the song Crucified, and Lady Gaga has, in my opinion, definitely been inspired by the band and that particular song. Alexander Bard is no stranger to controversy in his life, then or now, as you'll no doubt hear in this interview. So, Alexander, look at you. I can't believe it. Look at you, Steve. <laughs> it's been so long. I know. I, I've, dr- I've dressed up like a Florida senior citizen. That's my look for today. And no makeup. This is Zoom. So we're in 2021 now. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to dress up as a Florida senior citizen. I practically I, am. I'm working hard on it. I'm working hard on my alcoholism, too. I, I, I haven't become an alcoholic yet, but I'm drinking as much as I possibly can whenever given the chance. And I hope I'll be turning, turning into an alcoholic eventually. So, yeah, it's yeah. okay. It only takes 10 years, yeah. let me tell you. Yeah, yeah I, I've promised everybody they're going to die dancing on a dance floor. Just like... <laughs> you know, well, really, I'm going to make a real big change in this uh, process right now and take you back uh, to Motala. In Motala, yes. In it sounds South like it, I, I think there is a town in Mozambique called Motala, but there's another one in Sweden. Now, this is a real... To me, I went on Google Maps, I have to admit it, and it's near um, Yan Shopping, order. It's near, yeah. near there. So I, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this must be a complete and utter backwater where someone like you <laughs> grows up. Um, so I'd really like you to tell me what your youth was like, what sort of family you grew up in, and what their beliefs were, and and how that was at that time for you. Well, I should I should say that Motala has become one of these places that, that have now become very easy to market following COVID nineteen. So because it is within three hours from Stockholm, so uh, yes, they they build all these summer houses, and you you know in, in Russia they got the Dutch house, in Sweden we got our Stugor, so so you have these huge summer houses. So actually, these days, this is a resort area, but it wasn't when I grew up. So you, your question is absolutely the proper one, because when I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s, yeah, this was kind of a backwater. It was. So um, and it was also very communist in Sweden. Sweden really was socialist, at least culturally in the 1970s. I mean, um, they were inspired by North Vietnam and North Korea and anything outside of that would be civilized. So when I when I wanted to listen to hit records, you know, my my beloved pop records out there. I had to sit with my sister during the night and re- listen to Radio Luxembourg, like if we were some kind of Samistad youth in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union trying to, to get access to these records, even ABBA, you know, to, to hear the new ABBA single, you would actually have to listen to a foreign radio station. So what music was did that, you listen to yeah. back then? I mean, if it's oh, Radio Lux- if it's uh, Luxembourg, then it was really, you know, just 
chart pop music back then, I presume. But yeah, but I, I, what I loved was I loved the subversive version of pop music. So uh, I was very proud yesterday to find out that the new season of Britannia is using T-Rex Children of the Revolution as its theme. And, you know, T-Rex still sounds fantastic 40 years later. And, and T-Rex and Mark Bola was my first real idol. Then I was into Gary Glitter, too. And since I was quite young, maybe that wasn't such good taste on my part. But I didn't have good taste. I never had good taste. So I was into Gary Glitter. Uh, and and I, I'd be willing to forgive him just about everything because he was so cool, right? But if Gary Glitter didn't last well, neither musically or culturally, certainly Mark Boland did. So my, my first major inspiration was Mark Boland and T-Rex. And I really had to listen to Mark Boland on Radio Luxembourg or find the occasional Dutch or, or British radio station to even have access to that music, it was almost impossible to get hold of in Sweden. So Sweden literally in the 1970s had the highest record sales in the world per capita. Because if you liked anything and had any sort of taste, you would have to go to record store to buy it because radio would never play it. You mentioned that you were in the in your bedroom with your sister and that's how, you know, the only place where you could listen to pop music. Yeah, and were we played cards and we got drunk too. No, but were so your we were family teenagers. strict? Yeah. <laughs> were your family strict? No, 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 no. I have very mixed upbringing. Uh, I grew up in Sweden. Uh, there's a strong African uh, connection to the family. Uh, I have a brother who's black, by the way. He was adopted. And uh, so we would go to Africa when I was a kid. So we were odd in Sweden because we were bicultural. And I think the whole bicultural thing is something I took with me into the world of music and into the world of philosophy in my later careers, because I always found that if you have at least two cultural upbringings, and if you, if you speak at least two languages, preferably even more than that, like you do as well, then you're better off. You become much, smart, much smarter, you, you, you're more creative, uh, much more open. Uh, I think it's a prerequisite today for being creative is to have at least least to preferably even more cultures in your own personal background. So for me, that was a benefit. But yeah, it was a backwater. I had good friends. There was loads of nature. This was next to Lake Vettern. It's very idyllic. It's, it's, it's Sweden at its most beautiful. Like, you know, it's like it's like Lake Forest or something like that in, 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 uh, in, in the UK. I mean, it was just like stunning nature everywhere. And I was happy. And I, I, had, I had animals, lived in a big farm. I had goats and rabbits. And they both breed a lot. I knew that. So uh, I was a happy kid. It wasn't bad. But I think when I got into my teens, it, it got hard. I was 13, 14 years old because I was dying to get out of there. I was dying to get out and travel and go somewhere else. And when I was 70 years old, basically, my dad gave me a one-way ticket to America and said, you can go off to America and find some high school or some college and you know, study in America. And if you want to return back, you get your own return ticket. We're, we're the same mate. I wasn't, mate. I wasn't bound to becoming Swedish. That wasn't the goal for my parents at all. They just wanted to have a free and happy kid. Oh, that's really nice. I mean, we're the same age. And uh, one of my biggest memories as a teenager was battling in an era where being gay was a real problem, battling with my sexuality and not being able to be open about it. And, and it, that having quite an impact on me. And I think an impact in, in, in essence on the rest of my life, because it sort of made me feel, even though I don't think I was, but it made me feel that I was different to other people. Were you different at school? Yes, a... but that's good. <laughs> because Tell me why it's good. Don't think like, then they don't think like the others. I mean, uh, I think I'm agoraphobic, essentially. So if people go on a stage, they're either narcissistic or agoraphobic. And the difference is that the narcissist wants to stay on the stage for as long as he possibly can and doesn't want to go off the stage and he, he wants to have the flowers and, and, and be celebrated and then want to stay there and get all the applause. Whereas the agoraphobic is the guy who counts down the minutes. How many more minutes do I have before the concert is over or the speech is over? Oh, and then I'm going to walk off the stage and have what we call a rape shower in Sweden. So I have a shower where I just wash away all the dirty sin and nasty shame that I've got. And then I'll send off an invoice to the guys I just performed to and never ever see them again. So I had this agoraphobic streak. And I remember my parents told me when I was like four or five years old that they brought me to crowd once. It was a huge market. These, these were the days when people still went to markets, right? Not, not just Ibiza women looking for drugs, but actually people did go to markets to buy stuff, right? So it was a huge market. And I remember that I was just screaming. You know, I was just like, get me out of here. 
get me away from this crowd. So I was the kind of kid who was very comfortable being different. So I was kind of the kid who was both a nerd and also run the fun clubs at school. So it's like, yeah, if you would have a, a dance party and get all the kids out, you know, run a youth disco or something like that, I would do that, but I would also be the nerd at the same time. And I think that's what saved me because I think becoming a nerd is a tough struggle. Like you said, if you're gay, that's a tough struggle. I'm bisexual myself. So you, I, I could sort of escape from being the scapegoat guy. I wasn't, I wasn't in danger during my teenage years like many gay people are. So I'm very grateful for gay people in that sense because I feel this close connection. I'm half gay at least, or an amateur faggot as I call it. So, but I, I could play around with that in my teenage years and I was allowed and, and supposed to play around with these things. I, I remember I was the only kid at school who didn't have a curfew. So there wasn't a time where I had to go home. It's just like my dad said, no, you go home when you think it's right to go. And as soon as you can get yourself a moped or, or a motorbike and get yourself a driver's license and a car and you're free. Because you got a car, you can drive. You can go wherever you like, whenever you like. And that kind of freedom, I think, came with this sort of mix of African and Swedish. So there was a South, South African and Ethiopian bent in the family. And, and we grew up in Sweden with a Swedish mother. Her parents or her family had been missionaries in Africa. And my father had roots in Africa. So we had this mix in the family. So the bicultural thing worked to my advantage. I was allowed to be different. I was inspired to be different. And I never, ever felt that that was the problem. My problem when I grew up was that it was boring. I didn't find enough exciting people to hang out with. And that's what I started doing when I turned 17 and went to America and decided never, ever to live in the countryside again, but to live in big cities with tons of fun people around me and be inspired. I mean, one of the things about being different is and, and being bisexual in, in that era is you get attention um, for being different. And what's interesting is you talk about attention in your TED Talks. You talk about uh, the end of capitalism and the economy of, of attention. Is that where that thought was based as well? Because throughout your whole career, which I come to in, you know, as we talk, but throughout your whole career, attention has played a massive role, I think, in terms of how you've presented yourself in your music and in your videos, and later on, how you present yourself today. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I'm a big enemy of advertising. So I'm also an enemy of marketing. And what was interesting with the music industry was that it was so media driven. And precisely because so media driven, advertising didn't pay off. So you had to figure out how to communicate what you were up to and reach the right audience for what you communicated rather than trying to find the broadest possible audience. So advertising in general is like you, you put an ad on the TV and you sort of look away when you realize that everybody hates you for doing that. It's called spam these days for, you know, deserved reasons. Um, and uh, so you look away, but you hope that somebody, it's going to stick with somebody, it's going to glue with somebody. And because it glues with somebody, you can sell your product. And that's how advertising essentially works. Now, um, I hated that to begin with. I think we all do. But in music, that was also impossible, except for the occasional poster you would put in a record store, just telling people that a certain record had, be, had been released. You couldn't really do advertising when it came to music. And then when the music video came around, we, both you and I were instrumental. You certainly were, because you were at MTV at the time when all this exploded. I think the record industry saw the music video as an advertising format, whereas the rest of us who work with it, me on the production side and you on the presentation side, we were trying to make the best out of this, these works of art that we were doing music videos, right? We knew that the music video was an art form. It wasn't advertising at all because then people would have turned off MTV and they wouldn't have seen Steve Blame tell them what was good days that week. So, you know, the, the, the thing that thrilled me about the music is the experience it got, it was an early adapter of what I now call the internet society. So we now call the internet was something that was already functioning widely in the music industry. And I think it, it is my, why I got stuck in it and got absorbed with it and wanted to stay with it before I became a philosopher was that I want to be music producer, songwriter, and run record companies and do music publishing. I wanted to be immersed in the music industry, knowing that I'd be the first one to go into the internet age and also the first one to arrive at the crisis, which was of course when CD sales dropped dramatically in the late 1990s, 
profits went out of the music industry and people thought it was dead because the pirates came along and basically just hijacked everything and distributed the music as they saw, as they saw fit. But I, I was also the only music industry executive in Europe who joined the pirate party. Because by then I was convinced that you can't fight against the times. I'd learned that also from the music industry. If the kind of music you like is not in any longer, but is out, you will not be able to make a record next season because nobody will want to buy it because they think your music tastes become unfashionable and boring and you better move on. It's like a kick in the ass, right? So I learned from the music industry that attention would be the key thing. And you don't get attention through advertising and marketing. You get attention by providing people with a product that they love, where they then go off and tell their friends. They find something that they love. They even have friends who they share taste with. And within these subcultures, the music industry has always thrived on, the idea spreads that this guy came out with a new record and it's actually really good. And by the way, he's bisexual and funny, takes tons of drugs. He's a good idol too. So you immerse yourself in this culture, the subculture, and that subculture in the music industry is completely without advertising. Whereas the rest of the economy has been ticking on with this advertising bomb. And what we're seeing now in the 2020s is that advertising no longer works. We hate it. We call it spam. We don't want it. So attention is what attention is your ears and your eyes and your senses, what you give attention to over time. So it absorbs you. What fascinates you? What is ambivalent and fascinating to you? What is great art to you, right? That's what you give attention to. And, and we're really leaving the age where money is the driving force of, of our society. We're moving into an age where attention has become the dominant mode. What fascinates us? We're completely thrilled with that question because it's the one and only question these days. Now, you were in this communist enclave of Motala, and at 17, you go to the capitalist world of America. What did that experience give you and how did it change your perspective of the world? Well, the first thing that happened was when I arrived in Ohio, my host family had the radio on in the car and were listening to the latest hit records. So the parents were cool. <laughs> parents listened to his records. Uh, you, they knew the chart. They knew that Donna Summer was number one that week with hot stuff. And they were talking about their own sex life in the bedroom because they loved that track because it made them feel hot, like hot stuff. So they lived pop culture. America, and I think the UK, lived pop culture at the time. Sweden did not. So when I came back to Europe, I, I, I was offered to stay in America which would have made me an American. And I've always been very, very grateful for the way American culture embraced me and my personality type. I was, the, I was you, know, you were either the football jock, we were the drama guy at high school. I was the drama guy, right? So you, I got laid. So often with the football jock and the homecoming queen at the same time. So <laughs> yeah, that was America. America was generous to my personality. But when I was 20 years old, I was in New York. I was going to go to drama school and I decided America was not for me because although I loved the pop culture of America and, and the closeness to pop culture that people experienced, uh, the problem was that America was only interested in America. And I grew up interested in the world. So if I couldn't find pop records, you know, unless I went to the record store in Sweden in the 1970s, my problem in the late 1970s in America was that I couldn't get a news feed that wasn't obsessed with New York and Washington DC only, which is America still today. It's the top of the information hierarchy. It's like the rest of us cannot avoid being informed about what happens in America. Oh, they got a demented president. Biggest news ever for months, right? And the rest of us are just force-fed that because what happens locally in the country we live seems to be you know, ignored these days, right? So that was always the problem. I, don't, I didn't want to be part of that. I wanted to be part of something world-oriented, world inspired by music from all over the world, not just the latest pop records in the charts. And I decided to move to Europe and live either in Amsterdam or Berlin. I think it was similar to you in the sense that Amsterdam and Berlin were the two cities in the 1980s that attracted me. I didn't want to live in London. I wanted to live in Amsterdam or Berlin. And I did. So I lived in Amsterdam first and later in Berlin for years. But Amsterdam. And that's when I started. Yeah. And that's when I started exploring using technology. I was never a musician. I was hardly even a singer, but uh, I started buying the first cheap synthesizers because this was the 1980s, right? That was inspired by Eurythmics and Kraftwerk and these other synth pop bands. And I realized 
I could probably do the same thing. This isn't too hard. And then I realized that talent for it, I could write songs and make arrangements. And I got a recording contract very quickly because it turned out that I had these flashy ideas of what you would do on a stage. My background was video and performance art. But then out of that, I happened to have a talent for writing three and a half minute pop songs with modern arrangements. And that's, that, that's what got the interest of several record companies. I, I even had an early start in 1983 when I met Connie Plank in Germany, who you should know. Connie Plank, is, he was a legend, right? He was the producer of Kraftwerk, Eurythmics, Ultravox, all these bands. He was very eccentric, an old hippie, living with several wives in, in the farmyard outside of Cologne. And I went to see him. He loved me and loved my days. He even signed me personally and Rita Mitsuko from France the same day. But then he died, probably from a cocaine overdose, to be honest about it. So he died. And then I realized that the music industry works because I was like, I was, I was the cool kid that everybody wanted to talk to. And suddenly nobody answered my phone calls because I was no longer Connie Plank's protege. So I had that early start and learned quickly that I actually have to figure out how I become a name of my own somebody's respected for my professionalism and for my talent. And a couple of years later in Sweden, I met Ola Hawkinson, who was a favorite of mine. He had a great band called The Secret Service, who were not very big in the UK, except for the gay clubs, but they were huge in the rest of Europe. So they were like after ABBA, the second biggest name coming out of Sweden. And compared to Bjorn and Benny from ABBA, who were not very generous, they were into their own thing all the time. Ola was very generous in adopting the next generation, training new producers and songwriters and running a good record company. I loved Ola. He became like my older brother and he believed in me. He signed me in 1985 as a songwriter and a producer saying that I don't know what it is about you. You, you. I mean, you're so totally off from what everybody else is doing, but keep doing your off thing because I'm just convinced that that's the next big thing to happen. I was literally the first white European guy making house music records. So I was doing house music in 1985, which is, I just heard these great gay black guys from America making great dance tracks programmed so they could do disco programmed. Fantastic idea. I don't have to hire a whole damn disco orchestra for the musicians. I can just program it myself and make a disco record. It's a bit clumsy, but fun. House music. I loved it. That's how I got in, inside the music industry. And, you know, a year later, I was the cool guy. And then things started happening. But I want to take you back to Amsterdam, because one thing that really stands out in your Wikipedia biography is that you were oh, never in... believe Wikipedia. And so you didn't work in the section. They don't even have my birthplace or birth date right or anything. I, I just allow it to be there. So I can tell people, like, if you check the first sentence of Wikipedia, it's a lie already right there. But keep it, you know. So who writes yeah. who writes that you're a sex worker in Amsterdam then? That's... Oh, that's correct. Oh, there, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so that's the thing. And I thought, OK, first of all, what does sex worker mean? Because it does mean working in the sex industry or does it mean what's going through my head right now? No, 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 it definitely is work. It's hard work. No, I, I was invited. I came to Amsterdam and I worked as an assistant. I think it was Noel Harding I worked for first. I worked as an assistant for, this was a video and performance art scene that was very centered on Amsterdam in the early 1980s. Money was pumped from the tech companies, a bit like today when you go to Netflix. You know, the, the, at the time it was Sony who pumped money into whatever we were doing in Amsterdam. So we could do whatever we like. And, 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 and I, I love that atmosphere to be there. And then I had two friends, two quirky, funny guys who were selling sexual services. They were kind of a bit bored, wanted to smoke their joints, and they were good looking. So they adopted me. And I was just like, I'm going to hang out with these really great looking guys and sell sex. And just like, yeah, we got a specialty for you. What? We're going to put your boots and claw on jeans, and you're going to be Nazi skinheads. What? What? Neat. It's like the music industry, Steve. The music industry. Nietzsche's. Everything is about Nietzsche's. Find your own subculture and your set. And then you'll discover if you find your own subculture, your niche. You might as well go global. Were you popular? You might as well have well found the perfect to like Nazi skinheads. Ever. I was very popular. There was definitely a market for this Nazi skinhead with an attitude. What? <laughs> I did it for so four bad. years. Okay? After, yeah, after doing that, yeah. what did it leave you with? Did it leave you with um, some sort of attitude about uh, uh, clients of the sex industry, did you did it change any of your world perception, any of your perception of humanity? I, this is really funny because I'm actually doing a podcast series with Leona, Laura Leon. Laura Leon is a really gorgeous Norwegian sex worker dominatrix, obviously. 
And we're exploring what if we study sex work from a Marxist perspective? What if sex work is the only work? Because in sex work, it's absolutely necessary to separate work and spare time. One is called sex, one is called love, right? So uh, it, it's beneficial to be bisexual because a lot of sex workers are bisexual. And that means they pick a partner from one gender and then they sell sex to the other gender. And that's kind of more coincidence than, than the choice. It, it, just, it just makes it easier. But it highlights the fact that for a sex worker, it's really, really important to make a difference between selling sexual services and having sex with people that you actually have feelings for. And that was striking to me. I, I don't think I ever had sex in private with somebody that I sold sexual services to. That made it easier for me to separate the two. So yes, a, a lot of the people I sold sex to were sexually very attractive. But what you do when you do sex work is that when you meet somebody you get feelings for, you're attracted to normally, you compromise on your fantasy. So it's, it's the mix of your fantasy and the other person's fantasy that becomes the sexual act. Now, when you sell sex, you sort of take away your own fantasy. It's not there, it's work. That's something you, you say for a spare time. So you go into work mode. And basically you're given an offer. So somebody says, I have this sexual fantasy that I really, really, really want to happen. And I'm willing to pay for it. So here's the fantasy. And I'm asking you, are you willing to do it with a hard on, preferably, or something, you know, it would work for you. It would turn you on. Uh, are you willing to do it? And what would be the cost? So essentially, it's a trade deal. And that's what's called trade. So the trade deal is essentially, yeah, yeah, sure. I could do that. Yeah. I could definitely do that with some passion. You know, you put passion into work. I'm proud of my work. I could definitely do that. Yes, and here's the price tag. And then you make the deal and uh, you conduct the ceremony, so to speak. And that's work. And I think sex workers have always fascinated me because to begin with, they're always the scapegoats of everybody else's frustrations in a society. So people go after a woman and call her a whore, for example. Well. My point is that sex workers aren't the real whores. Whores are people who sell their souls to the devil, right? Sex workers actually don't. They say no. <laughs> they say no to offers they don't want to do. They're like any trader in the bazaar. They say yes to certain offers. They say no to other offers. And sometimes they say, I could do that, but the price tag's got to be higher. So you have to pay more for me to do it, right? So you do the deal and then off you go and you're proud of your work. And I found a really strong sense of unity among sex workers, both men and women, both gays and straights and anything in between and trannies and everything. I think a lot of the good stuff that I liked about the LGBT movement was my own experience as a sex worker. And I think sex work is the place where all those sort of sexual minorities really meet and have a really sort of organic uh, meeting point. So, I was interested in this for various reasons. I did it professionally for four years, then quit. It doesn't mean that I would never ever do it again. There are perverts out there who like old men, believe me, they exist. So, um, but uh, I learned an immense, an immense amount of things from that period. Yeah, it was tough at times and rough at times and uh, people are weird. I learned how sick and weird people actually are. <laughs> so it, 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 it got me interested in psychoanalysis. And I later became a psychoanalyst, which, which is essentially taking philosophy and applied on a single human being and that human being's own life. That's what psychoanalysis is. And I, I don't think I'd ever gotten as interested as I was, especially being a Nazi skin and selling to Jews. Freud was my idol. <laughs> so, but yeah. you must have actually really, you know, you said you became a psychoanalyst because of this, but you must be able to judge people very, very quickly when you're a sex worker because of the danger or the situation that you could be in. So you need to be able to see who is here for the reasons you want them to be there and who is there maybe for things that uh, you don't want or may take you down another route where you don't want to go. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have cover. So uh, the thing is that we were three guys working together. We always covered each other. So a phone call away, friend coming over. So it's like, you know, if somebody didn't play by the rules and sometimes they didn't, sometimes they even got a kick out of not playing by the rules, then 
the thing you would tell them afterwards was like, and I mostly sold sex to couples, right? So the, the, the thing you tell them right afterwards was just like, okay, um, you did what you did. You broke the rules. Um, it, don't call any of my friends in this town ever again. Cause they will all know within 24 hours that you're assholes. Oh, wow. Oops. Okay. Did you- No more fantasies explored, right? So what you essentially do is like a bazaar. What you do is that if somebody treats you unfairly, you basically lock the market for them. And if you're a good sex worker, if you're credible, if you're honest, if you're decent towards the other sex workers, again, with attention here, you get the credibility among the others. And sex workers actually do stay together way more than any profession I know of, because they have to. Then of course, you know, besides that, I think sex workers, are tougher than other people are. They have a certain, what I call a shamanoid personality, which is more experimental. They can go further when it comes to experimenting with drugs and sex and anything. They, they just have a psyche that usually can handle more than the psyches of other people are. And often because they had really tough upbringings. A lot of sex workers I've met says, yeah, I was raped when I was nine years old. You know what, this is my way of dealing with it. And it's a constructive way of dealing with it, a creative way of dealing with it. I get paid. For it now, you know, and I can turn it around and I'm in charge rather than me being the victim of, 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 of somebody who is assaulting me, right? So I think I think the current discourse in society today, I hate woke. I hate victimhood cults. And all the sex workers I ever met hate that. And they hate when people who are not sex workers try to speak on their behalf and turn them into victims here in Scandinavia, especially in Sweden. This is constantly the case that radical feminists go out and say they speak on the behalf of sex workers who they declare are trafficking victims and all kinds of nonsense, which is blatantly untrue. So I just think that sex workers like anybody out there should be allowed to speak for themselves. That, that's what I learned from my four years as a sex worker. And I am a member of the sex workers union today because if you've done sex work, you're allowed to be a member and I'm an honored member. I go there every year to the annual meetings and I make coffee for the other girls and guys who are there. Just, just that out, just out of, you know, it's just, it's just my, my gratitude uh, towards them for being allowed to be part of their profession and respected as one of the professionals who did what I did. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. It's funny when I read that sentence, because part of me in what I imagined was that what you may have learned from there was the sort of cabaret aspects that are in Barbie, the cabaret aspects that are in Army of Lovers. The, some of those, um, you know, I mean, the, some of those visual aspects uh, that... I had in my head when I imagined sex work in Amsterdam, maybe those visual aspects that you took from that into your later work. Is that also- Well, this is the funny thing. I never sold sex as a tranny. I hope I can say tranny. I hope it's not politically incorrect to use the word today. But yeah, uh, I, I love the word, by the way. So I, Barbie was the tranny character that I co-developed with a friend of mine, John Sermon. I was a student at Stockholm School of Economics. And this was like, just have fun in the spring. Let's do something. I didn't have a recording contract yet, so I just invented the Barbie figure. And I was more suitable than him to play the figure. So the funny thing is that I did explore that by doing my only drag act was the Barbie figure. And I never sold sex as a tranny. A lot of sex workers do, but I actually went the other way. So what I explored selling sex was my much more masculine side. If anything, I, I was a drag king, but with a penis, right? So, so, um, I, 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 think, I think that makes sense as well. I think, I think when things get too private, you don't put them on the stage. What you do though, what you can creatively do is that you can put the exact opposite of what you're exploring on the stage and then you can do the other thing in private or professionally, what, uh, what you do when you do sex work is not what you do when you make love. Barbie, you make them two I distinctly felt, different things, yeah. I met you in that period. That's when I did the first interview, I think. And I had the feeling then that this is ahead of its time. This is something that is at, I don't know when that was, was that sort of late 80s, 88, 89? It must have been about that era. For it was the, even before that. It was actually, uh, it's actually 85, 86. Yeah. And, and I remember and when coming, the first Army of Lovers single came out when the night is cold, I'd already changed gender and, and dressed male again. So Barbie the Barbie. time yeah. in a lot of ways because of the transgender aspect and the, the, um, 
I mean, I, I think uh, it was more. Oh, you, I mean, if you talk to RuPaul, the RuPaul's drag show, whatever it's called, it's fantastic. You would never had RuPaul unless those things had happened. Even, even Lady Gaga's admitted this was a period when the stuff that I and Camilla Tulling worked with inspired them later. So we were a cult. We were definitely a cult. Barbie's prostitution twist was a cult record all over America and in Japan. I mean, the stuff we did in Sweden wasn't number one in Sweden. That was never the point. The stuff we did in Sweden was exported through these record stores and, and ended up in all kinds of weird places. And we had fans. We had fans who were obsessed with the whole weirdness and craziness of the Barbie figure. Barbie would go on television in Sweden and say that, oh, I just had, uh, I, 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 I just heard you found Russian submarines in the Stockholm archipelago. Sorry for bringing them in. You'll find 400 condoms around my house from last night, right? So Barbie would just explain that the reason why the Russians are here because they want to fuck me and I want 400 of them. I'm a nymphomaniac, right? So Barbie Hitchcock, as her name was, was this drag character was just completely over the top, like the ultimate drug character you could ever think of, right? And sweet and cute while she was nasty like hell. That was the character. I played it, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't really into the putting on the lady stockings thing. And I think if I had been, I would have loved it. I would have explored it. I would have stayed with it, but I wasn't. I didn't find the transsexual in me. It's like my girlfriend says that you, you're really a lesbian with a built-in dildo. You know, that's so me. <laughs> if, if, if I want to change gender and go through gender op, gender surgery, I would change my own gender even more. That's me, right? So, so I'm desperately more masculine than I actually am, if anything. So the personal journey was that I, I went back to La Camilla and I went back to Jean-Pierre and Camilla Tudine and I told them that, okay, you, you were great to support the Barbie character, but let's turn this into a band. I'm not comfortable being center stage. I think all of us should be center stage. And while I do it, I'm going to change back to being a guy. And then we can go really flamboyant and over the top and see what happens. That became Army of Lovers. So the Barbie product was how we learned to express ourselves and be uncompromising and have fun in what we did. And we were allowed to. And Barbie wasn't signed by Lockenson. He signed me uh, personally while I was doing the Barbie project. And he, he understood why I had to do it. And he thought it was funny. But of course, when I came in through the door with Army Lovers, he said, this is the big one. You just, you just trained doing Barbie. This is, this is you. This is more honest. This is, this is more what you were about. This is more what La Camilla and Jean-Pierre are about. They're now at the forefront of the whole project. You put your best friends center stage, do it, right? And that was Army Lovers. I think that's really interesting you say that because everyone I've talked to in, in who's been successful in the music industry has basically had their learning process from all areas of their life along the way. And then suddenly the bit that works is when it all combines and comes together at uh, a particular moment in time. And that was it really uh, for Army of Lovers. That's where it suddenly hit a nerve and suddenly you were just massive all across Europe. But tell me about Chris. Yeah, we, we, we were still actually cool experimental with the first album. So uh, we're allowed to be that. This Extravaganza was a, was a kind of hard earned album. It was ahead of the avalanches that we used sampling extensively because we weren't that interested in singing or even speaking on the records like we later did. We weren't that interested in musically expressing ourselves. We were just interested in music that we loved. So we tried to sample and make music that we would love ourselves. That was the entire first album. But when the second album came along, then Ola Hawkinson told me, you kind of, if you just bend it slightly, you know, do more classic songwriting like you do for everybody else. Because I was a very successful songwriter already in Sweden, had several number one records for other artists. So he said, why don't you write something that's Army of Lovers that has the catchy tunes to it that you do for everybody else? And I said, okay. So Army of Lovers was the sort of left field experimental band that, yeah, we, our videos were played on MTV already, right? The Bullet, the first video was on MTV. That's correct. They weren't number one in the charts or anything. But when the second album came along, Crucified came out, and then it just exploded. So it, just, it was just like everybody was waiting for Army Lovers to have that hit record and happen. And when it came, boom, it went through the roof. Well, about, what is it about Crucified that made it such a massive hit, do you think? Have you ever sort of thought about it? Oh God, he was so gay. <laughs> he was AIDS. He was, he was like, it was like, it was, finally, finally, there was some hope on the horizon. And I remember that many of my gay friends told me that I don't even know whether I want to survive or not if they get these medications that make us survive or what quality of life could have possibly, because all their friends had died. You know, it was slaughterhouse between 1984 and 1992. The, re the, reason, the reason why fashion is terrible these days is because all the gay guys that should do the fashion all died during those eight years. Because women can't do fashion, only gay guys can. 
women are horrible at fashion. They, they do the same fashion every year as always gray and beige. Whereas the gay guy comes into the door and says, you're a woman, dress up, more color, higher heels, get sexy. Yes, you dare, sister. That's what gay guys do. That's why they do fashion really well. And the reason why we have this lack in our culture today, why, why Broadway went into repetition mode, what the new novel stuff that should exist today doesn't exist the way it should is because for eight years, every damn good looking gay guy in the West died, more or less. And the few that survived were set back for the rest of their lives because they spent eight years in, in wardens and hospitals, right? So I knew there was something about that. And Crucify was just this hysterical idea that, that we would play with it, take the Christ figure, put a Jew, Jean-Pierre Barda, on the cross, which is totally detrimental to Christianity Smith about itself, and then I'd be a gay Jewish guy and then let him die on the cross and said, I have to sacrifice myself, AIDS, whatever, because if I don't sacrifice myself, then you cannot live, right? And that became the crucified anthem. And But it's also it, a celebration it, in a way, isn't it? That's the that's why it yeah, works. It's, Oh, it's has- total tragic comedy. It's like it's like it can't decide whether it's totally devastated and totally sad. It is it, 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 it is absolutely this sort of it's very Russian in the sense that it's like, oh, I love being sad and horrible. <laughs> it had that feeling to it. But I remember when I came to Bunker, it was a huge disc on Buenos Aires in Argentina, where I used to go in the winter just to get some sun, right? And I walked into Bunker and there was a huge gay disco. And at the middle of the night, crucified, burst out, maxi single format, you know, next 50 minutes of crucified orgy on the dance floor. And people just went, wow, they went crazy. And I'm like, this is what all the young gay guys do now when they're riding between the death sentence that AIDS was and possibly a hope for a future. And then this song comes along and it just nails it. It doesn't nail it in the obvious way because that, that would never work. It nails precisely the sort of artistic, intricate, way like what is this song really about well it's certainly about me <laughs> and then they went out on the dance floor and sang along with, 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 with the lyrics of course now you you said that you know it was a, a, a reaction uh for the for the people that either died or suffered um during that period but um i think for any person who lived through that period who's gay or bisexual who lived through that period and um wasn't personally touched by it, but had friends that were touched by it. I think it's had a ma- it has had a massive impact on their life. Uh, in any case, it had a massive impact on uh, my development during a period where I was sexually active, very sexually active. You know, in your in in your twenties, you are, and yeah. and so that has an impact on you. What was the impact personally uh, for you, and how has that held? So, you know, onto you for your life, or does it? Does it have an impact today? No, I see, I see the point. There, there was the, the, both the beauty of the song and the dark sense of humor involved um, worked. Um, now, just, just keeping Army of Lovers together was, we all know, a hellhole. It was just like, it, it was a nightmare. We came out of Sweden. Sweden had very little experience of internationally successful pop acts. There was just ABBA, Europe, and Roxette, or Secret Service before that. So we didn't have a management industry. We didn't have psychotherapists and we needed it. So we were left to ourselves basically being awake 24 hours a day promoting our records. That, that's what happened. And we were on tour and La Camilla broke down and eventually led to the split between her uh, on one side, me, Jean-Pierre and Camilla to the other side. And the only way for the band to survive actually at that stage was to introduce Michael de la Cour. And we did it when we went over to the States. But how did uh, Spain change you? Because that, that you know, you say that you had all that pressure on you and everything. Yeah. Fame does have an impact on, on people. And if you're in a band, fame has a different impact on the different people. Oh, in and band especially and if you don't have support. Yeah, and especially if you don't have support from anywhere. It, it wasn't that our Swedish record company weren't nice to us. They just didn't have the experience. They had no idea. How do you, how do you handle somebody who just had an international breakthrough in less than three months? Because even with the Swedish acts before, I was like ABBA and Roxette, they were prepared for years of being successful in Scandinavia before the breakthrough came. So they knew what was going to happen. 
we had no idea. We came from absolutely out of nowhere. And suddenly we and Dr. Alban were number one all over Europe. And the only guy we met was Dr. Alban. He had no idea what it was like either. He was just a dentist coming out of Stockholm. And suddenly was number one in, in Germany. It was so weird because, because of MTV, the breakthroughs were suddenly so quick. Uh, we were not prepared. So I had the chaos in the band. What I decided to do basically, I think, is that, okay, let's make one song at a time, one record at a time. Let's have some kind of apparatus that works reasonably so we can put these records out there. And I knew that if the Army of Lovers would have split after the Paris fashion shows where everything broke down, I would be dead in the music industry. And I would have dragged Lacamole and Champierre with me. So the only way for me to survive in the music industry was to show some maturity and have Lacamole kicked because he was the one who didn't work and deal with the others, and then introduce a new member and go off to America. And I did not want to pick another black girl. That would have been the ultimate cynical move. We had one on the way in, but no, no, that's degrading to La Camilla. She cannot be replaced. It's better to create a legend about her. She can have her career, off she can go, do her own thing. She should be set free. This should be like, this should be as decent a divorce as it possibly could be. So let's take the blonde girl instead. And then Michaela de la Corte jumped in. And when we came to Latin America, it turned out to be a really smart move because in Latin America and Russia, where army lovers broke big time in 1993 and 1994, Michaela was a star. She was what they wanted. So, so it turned out that we lost a lot of the credibility, probably with MTV, Certainly Western Europe, because La Camilla was the star. We promoted her that way. The breakup with her looked like these two nasty gay guys or whatever break up with a black girl. So the drama was all over the place. But we saved Army Lovers by just going somewhere else and having another girl join the band. And the year after, Dominica joined, and then the fun returned. So I was fine after that. Pop music is in many ways temporary or it's often temporary. You know, it's like you, you, you has form a band and if it lasts four years, you're really lucky. I mean, we did some research at MTV once and I think it was uh, in the late eighties about the length, average length of a band or, you know, and it was sort of their main focus of success would be over a four year period. Um, when yeah, it's an advice that? I got in 1985 from Ola Hawkinson. The day he signed me, he told me, just remember this one thing, Alexander, if you're this multi-talented, is that pop stars have an average age span of two years. Songwriters have an average age span of 20 years. Uh, don't jump to the stage too quickly. Rather stay in the studio and work hard there because then you got to have a long and prosperous career. And that was the best advice I could ever have had because I focused on the songwriting. Then I started Army of Lovers. Then I did the production part. So producer songwriter was my identity. And then having bands was just, the fun way of, you know, exploring my own ideas in an uncompromising way. And that's why I did have four bands during my 25 years in the music industry. And I loved every one of them. And they were all totally different from one another, which exactly why I wanted to go in different directions, explore different ideas. When did you get bored with the music industry or did you? No, I, I, it, it was sad when the CD crisis came along because in 1998, Everybody told you the golden age of the music industry was still ahead of us. I knew that was wrong. I had Napster at home. I knew they were lying to us. And that was just wishful thinking. And and I started reading Marshall McLuhan and these media theorists quickly and got into their world and realized, okay, this is a paradigm shift. And the music industry is now the first industry that uh, deplores the future. And that's got to be incredibly hard. So I sort of predicted that from being the coolest industry in the world, the music industry would soon hire lawyers to chase teenagers. And lawyers chasing teenagers is the uncoolest thing that exists. It's like parents going to a rave. It's, it's just unforgivably you know, tragic and bad. So it, it won't work. And that's exactly what happened. Five years after that, by 2003, when all the CD stores were finally closing down rapidly across Europe, you knew that the music industry was not a cool place to be. It was a sad place to be. The figures were down, profits were diminishing and, and, and disappearing. And I was out in a way. I did Alcazar at the time and wrote, wrote songs and produced records. Uh, but I lived in Berlin these years when the sort of the whole downturn came. And then finally, I did uh, Bodies Without Organs, BWO with Anders Hansson and set up the band in 2004. And it was my way of thinking, but could I still do music and think it's fun? All of the conditions for producing music are now radically different. So the smaller margins have to be more clever, product placements of the videos, whatever. Yeah, but you, you just got to do this if you want to make music. It, it's, 
you know, at the end of the day, you got the knife on, on, on your neck and this is what you need to do. So BW was an experiment in that and it worked, but it was one of the few bands in Sweden that were really, really successful in the double knot. So we had, we had, we had BW from 2004 to 2011 and it worked and it produced hit single after hit single, but we were dependent on radio money and those kind of incomes because record sales were, they were bottom. They were completely at the bottom. And I think that's when the music industry started getting boring. Um, then the realization that Spotify would save the industry came to me a few years later. That was like, I, I, I worked with Spotify in 2005, but 2008, it was obvious that streaming would save the industry and it would be a money spinner again, but it would be a very different industry. It wouldn't be an industry of subversive pop culture, the kind of things that you and I love. It would be an industry that basically would consist of playlists and you would serve teenagers endless amounts of songs that they wouldn't relate to other than that it was just the next track in the playlist. So I think the music industry today is much more similar to the music industry in the 1940s when you went to a restaurant and there was an orchestra and they had a vocalist who sang and they had a conductor. And actually the orchestra was named after the conductor, not after the singer. So I think that's where the music industry is today. The producers have become more important. The, the songwriters that have a knack for hit songs are more important than ever, but the artists are interchangeable. It's just another face, another face, another face thrown in there because it's all playlists. I think it's impossible to create subversive pop culture today through the music industry. And that's what I wanted to do. So when I left in 2013 and the Gravitonas guys went off and were very successful without me, there you go. That's, you know, you're a good coach if you coach people to do fine without you or be even bigger without you, which they were. Love those guys. But I left in 2013 because to me, they still, they felt enormous enthusiasm going to Korea, writing hit songs for Korean boy bands. I felt nothing. I felt I've done this for 25 years. It's time for me to get out and become a full-time philosopher. I mean, that's quite a change. That's, I mean, what is a philosopher to start with? I mean, how it's can another you... art. It's another art form. I am. Yeah, but how can so... you just decide to become a philosopher? Oh yeah, yeah. So I, you just, I had a really great uncle who was a professor of philosophy and theology, and he was like my second dad when I grew up. And he told me when I was seven years old, find your archetype, find find your personality type, and you will discover you probably have a primary one and you have a secondary one. The primary one is the things you do with these. It just looks like magic. You just do it, right? Secondary archetype is that what you can do, especially if you get educated to do it, but it takes an effort. And actually the music industry was my secondary archetype. Why? Because you can't be a philosopher when you're 18. And the people who tried to become philosophers, they were young and were smart enough to do it, like Heidegger and Wittgenstein, always regretted the books they broke with when they were young. They had to rewrite their entire philosophy as they got older. I don't think you can do philosophy until you're at least 40 years old. It's just impossible before them. It's that complex. So. I was perfectly happy to wait. Now, I didn't know whether I would ever become a philosopher or not. It was actually in the 1990s. It was actually during a drug trip. It was so long ago, I can talk about it. But I was taking a trip with two friends who were writers. And during the trip, they, they, they almost started like a trial with me. They were just like, why do you write these pop songs for Alexander where you could be the next Hegel or Nietzsche? You have the potential to be a great thinker, which is awesome. It's just like, why are you wasting your time? And yeah, it was true. The songwriting part, the producing records part, the touring with artists part was the easy part in that sense, but it wasn't my primary archetype. It wasn't what I was meant to do. Rather, I realized that if I take the experience from working directly with media and then take that into the academic world, which is a very rare combination. You, you never find an academic who makes a career in media. And you never find a media person that makes an academic career. And I knew that mix could be a potentially really strong mix. And when Ola Hawkinson and I decided to sell Stockholm Records to Universal Music in 1998, I had fuck off money on my bank account for the first time in my life. I remember it was a Tuesday morning. I called the bank and said, you got all this money in your bank account. You could do whatever you like the rest of your life. Yeah, I got fuck off money. I can do exactly what I like. And the same week, I got a phone call from the Stockholm School of Economics. And they said, basically, we need somebody to do digital studies. The internet has arrived. We have no idea what it is, but it's gonna take over the world. And you're perfect for it, Alexander, cause you're obviously online and you do media and you work in the music industry and you understand how hard it is to get access to people's hearts and, and you know, sell them records or whatever. And you're also a trained academic. Whoa, unique combo. We'll give you the job. 
And I've been there at the Stockholm School of Economics walking in and out for the past 23 years. That set the stage for the first book, The Netocrats, that I co-wrote with Jan Söderqvist the year 2000. Three years later came The Global Empire. And now we have written five books and working on our sixth one together, Jan Söderqvist and I, and that became a philosophy career. So I became a philosopher and, and I, I did philosophy and music together in sort of in the mix, like sex work and sex love, you know, mix of two things until 2013. And then one morning, 2013, I woke up and realized, listen, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be mediocre, both things, if I don't skip one of them. I really, really want to be brilliant. If I want to go back to sort of being the subversive version of Max Martin or something, which I could be possibly, I've been there before, then how to work hard on it and skip the books. Or I write another, I had written three books by then. I write another three books with Jan, but this time I take myself very, very seriously. And I do my absolute utmost as a writer and a philosopher, but then I got to skip the music. And it was an easy choice because music had given me everything already. It was a finished lover. It was 25 years. I could go to the next Grammys Gala and say, thank you for everything you gave me. I hope I gave you something back, but my love affair with you is over. I'm leaving. I'm not going to write another song because I don't want to be mediocre hobby musician. I hate that. Especially not an older mediocre hobby musician. That's the worst thing in the world. So off I went. I think the last song I wrote with Andreas was actually the winning song at, in the Voice TV show in China. <laughs> it, it was a mediocre song, to be honest about it, but it was the winning song of the voice show in China. So I thought it was a perfect way to go, right? Now, when you were a teenager, you talked about, or you know, when you were very young, talked about being with your sister in the bedroom, listening uh, to the radio. And essentially, I would think at that time, dreaming of being in this other world, which you achieved, okay? So you went into- No, 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 no. I had no idea when I was a kid that I'd be a pop star. Because I wasn't a musician. I was living in, remember, this is the 1970s. I was living in a paradigm where you play instruments and read notes and sing well if you want to make a career in the music industry. You know, the kind of things they fool people who go to these idle TV shows. Like, you've got to be good at these things to, to have a career, which is bullshit, by the way. The most interesting artists ever got around those things. Like Army of Lovers. Like, we didn't care if we could sing or dance or whatever. We just went to premieres and openings all the time and looked better than everybody else. And we got the biggest pictures. So everybody wanted to be us. That's all it takes to be a pop star. But I, no, I had no idea. It was only when I bought a synthesizer in 1982 in Amsterdam and started making sounds to my video art pieces. And my friends or video artists came to me and asked me, you make such great sounds to these art pieces. Why don't you make sounds to my piece too? Why don't you become a video, video art sound engineer? And then I thought, well, why don't I then write songs, period? And those songs caught the attention of record companies and they were talented songs. They, there was complexity to them. They, they, they were weird and wonderful and had quirky ideas to them. This was obviously a guy who was musically talented. That's when I discovered that I could become a songwriter. Then I discovered I could be a record producer. Barbie was only meant as a joke. I never thought of myself as a pop star when I was Barbie, for God's sake. Then I would never have done Barbie. No, it was only when we started Army Lovers that I realized I now have so many number one hit songs that I've co-written that maybe I should dare to go on the stage with my own name as a pop star. It was only in 1988 that I started exploring that idea. I had no idea when I was a kid that I would ever be this sort of guy running around on the stage being glamorous. No, not at all. I, I did theater. That was the natural connection. When I went to America when I was 17, I went to drama school. I, I was supposed to, I, and I wrote my first play and, and had it perform when I was 19 years old. My talent was definitely theater, but theater was dusty and old. And what the music industry offered was new, fresh and technology, which was a much more interesting combination. So when I got the offer in the 1980s to skip theater and do the music industry instead, that was the easy choice. I mean, earlier we talked about the attention economy to say that uh, capitalism is dead and attention is- Oh, you're not allowed to say attention economy because it's not an economy. Okay. Attentional, okay. Attention, attention society. Yeah. yeah, economy okay. is capitalism. Whenever you talk about economy, it is capitalism you're talking about. No, attention is what we do not trade. Attention is what we will not give away to somebody for money. That's exactly what's the most valuable thing in the world now more than ever. That's what we call the attention society. Yeah. What do old people like me need to learn to be able to stay relevant in the world today? Oh, just stay curious. That's all it takes. It's just like, yeah, it, it's... um. 
I think of, you probably experienced the same thing. About somewhere around the age of 35, people slow down, become conservative. So if they love Bruce Springsteen when they were 35, they're going to love Bruce Springsteen when they're 75, and they're still going to think, Bruce Springsteen was the peak of civilization, everything after it went downwards. No, you went downwards. You became older. You became boring. What happens at 35 is that the vast majority of people are so drenched in baby diapers and, and marriage problems and everything and career moves and things. So they just break down and they lose all interest in the new. They become essentially conservative, right? So they want to conserve things as they are when they're 35 and think that's universal, valid for everybody. They don't realize that they're pathetic to those who are younger and they're already too boring to people who are older. So after 35, you need to make an effort. But once you get through that, say you're over 40 years old. I started BWO when I was over 40 years old. And, and the idea was very weird with this band. The, the idea was that we take Martin Linsky, the most good looking guy in the world, who's very, very handsome and sings fantastically. And he brings his parents with him, his band. So he takes like, he takes Marina and Alexander, who are 20 years older than him, and have them play the instruments and look ultra cool on stage while he's like the average Joe. It worked. BW worked. It was also one of these weird ideas for a band that nobody had seen before. So it made sense. But when we did that, I was over 40 years old when I started the band. And my absolute incessant curiosity for songwriting and for new sounds and, and making a new record that hadn't been made before, that hadn't been heard before. I shared that passion with Anders Sanson. I shared that passion with Maria Shevchenko. We were all passing the 40 barrier and we realized other people our age are boring. We're not because we're still curious. So if you, I know people who were curious until the day they died. And, and I think that's, that's what artists should be. You should always be curious and always out looking for the new. I want to end with one thing because on Twitter, it's clear that um, you are loved and hated in equal measure. I mean, sometimes the hate- is... As if my career had ever been different from that? <laughs> no, not at all. But <laughs> it's quite a shock when, when, I, when I saw your Twitter, or I, I mean, I follow you in any case, but I saw the, the, the Twitter page and sometimes you just think, my God, how do you, is it better to be loved or hated or is it all irrelevant? It's totally irrelevant. What counts is being respected. And you don't earn respect by trying to be loved. So again, we've talked about the narcissist and the agoraphobic. The reason why we love the agoraphobics more on stage than we love the narcissists. Whitney Houston was agoraphobic. Michael Jackson was agoraphobic. Prince was agoraphobic. They were not narcissistic. They had to take drugs just to go on a stage to dare to walk up on the stage. But once they were on the stage, they could handle the mass because the mass was now in their control. So the agoraphobe is looking for is that, could I be on a stage so I can control the mass they do what I want them to do? Then I'm perfectly happy standing here and I couldn't care less what they think of me because this is all about my control of them. It's not what they think about me. So it, Whitney Houston didn't kill herself because she regretted anything with her audience and she wasn't loved enough. No, she was probably bored to death with the whole industry and being Whitney Houston day and night so she took the drugs just to get release, agoraphobic released from all the attention she was given that she never asked for in the first place. That's the agoraphobe. So the agoraphobic character is interesting here. And I think I certainly have that, that, that trait because I'm never nervous when I walk out on the stage. Never. All the other guys are. I kind of miss that. It's just like, oh, you're nervous. You got to go up there and show them what you can do. And I'm just like, no, it's just work for me. <laughs> it's like sex work was when I was 20, then speeches when I'm 60, then performing on a stage with a band was when I was 40. It's not different at all. I just do my job and I'm proud of doing my job, but there's nothing else to it than the job itself. When you're on the stage, and you're playing the keyboards and you're singing the harmonies and 60,000 people in front of you are singing along because you made the number one record that season. This is the song they all want to hear and sing along to. And you're the star of that song. You play that song and you know that next year somebody else is going to be here because I'm not going to hit it right the next season again. I'm gonna go, not going to be that lucky another year. And next year, if I come back here, I have four people in the audience who are disinterested instead of the 60,000 that I have now. So... Am I here because the 60,000, because they love me? No, they don't love me. They love each other, hopefully. 
They're out with their friends and families hanging out. They might even get their date of their life and get married with somebody they meet tonight because I'm here performing to them. I'm just excused for them to be here. I'm serving them. But the reason why I'm here because I'm in a band and I'm hanging out with these three other guys in the band and they're fantastic. And our roadies are handpicked because our roadies are fantastic. And we're going to go off and party like mad when the performance is over. That's why you go on tour. So the, 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 um, the, the, the same thing goes through with everything I've done is that this, I think the agoraphobic character is the one I put on the stage. That's, that's what I'm also perfectly happy to put other people on stage next to me who can be as glamorous as they like. I'm not in competition with anybody. If they're more glamorous than me, then I share them on too, like everybody else does. And I'm happy to do that. But I only wanted one thing out of the performance and that was that the audience stayed in their place and didn't storm the stage or didn't walk away. And the way to do that is called respect. And the way to keep respect for years is to stay ambiguous. Don't, don't ever go easy to read. Never. People hate that. When they figure out what your thing is and what you're up to, and, and you don't even, when they figure out you can't surprise yourself any longer, when they figure out you're no longer curious, they get tired of you and they throw you away for very good reasons because you lose all respect. But if you stay ambiguous, it means you stay alive, you stay questioning, uh, you dare to say the politically incorrect when that should be said, you know, then, then you always stay ambiguous because it's ambiguous. People are always talking about you and you're always interested. And then you become a phenomenon. Brilliant. Well, Alexander, stay curious. <laughs> Same to you, <laughs> Steve. Being opinionated and wonderful and interesting, and what a life! So, yeah, and, and let, let me cheer on that and say that I'm I'm totally for LGBT classic. That's my new term these days. I I hate when LGBT had all these other letters added to it. It sounds like psychiatric diseases. Go back to LGBT classic. Stay political. No, it, it's not. It, LGBT people don't need to add letters to stay culturally relevant. They create fucking culture. If anything, LGBT people are culture. So, so if culture is something they're born to be, they don't have to proclaim it all the time. But LGBT classic as a political struggle, you and I are both concerned how hard it is for gay guys in countries like Iran and Uganda today. That to me, that's what I'm on fire about politically. That's my real concern. And that's also why I'm pro-blacks, but I was anti-Black Lives Matter. I didn't think that organization was what Blacks needed, but that's up to Blacks to decide. So it's, it's not that hard. It's just that these days with the tweets and things, you become controversial because people decide to misread what you say. And at the end of the day, if you stay ambiguous, eventually they will have to read what you actually meant. And then you win. And that's it for the interview with Alexander Bard. Thanks for listening and look out for new interviews each Monday and one from the archive each Throwback Thursday. See you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>